starting at verse 7 and reading through to the end of chapter 43. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johan, son of Kareh, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you, for I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. However, if you say we will not stay in this land and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord, you remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you're determined to go to Egypt and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so will my wrath be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You will be a curse and an object of horror, a curse and an object of reproach. You will never see this place again. Remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this, I warn you today, that you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, Pray to the Lord our God for us. Tell us everything he says and we will do it. I have told you today, but you have still not obeyed the Lord your God in all he sent me to tell you. So now, be sure of this. You will die by the sword, famine and plague in the place where you want to go to settle. When Jeremiah had finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord has sent him to tell them, Azariah, son of Hoshai, and Johan, son of Kare, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, You must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Barak, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians, so that they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. So Johan, son of Carrier, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stand, stay in the land of Judah. Instead, Johan, son of Carrier, and all the army officers led away all the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been scattered. They also led away all those whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had left with Gadaliah, son of Achim, the son of Shaphan the men, the women, the children, and the king's daughters. And they took Jeremiah the prophet and Barak, son of Neriah, along with them. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tarpanes. In Tarpanes, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. 
while the Jews are watching, take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Topinus. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd picks his garment clean of lice, so he will pick Egypt clean and depart. There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. Thank you, Jeff, very much. So do you keep that open? It's Jeremiah chapter 42, verse 7 to 43 and verse 13. And uh, we're thinking particularly about this question. Does disobedience really matter in the end? Now there was a a Jew and a non-Jew, a Gentile. Uh, In fact, that non-Jewish person was a Christian and they were having a friendly discussion over coffee one day. And, uh, <clears throat> and a Jewish guy said, you Gentiles have taken everything from us. Absolutely everything. Like what, said the Christian? Well, like the Ten Commandments, for a start. To which Christian replied, well, uh, we may have taken them, but you can never accuse us of keeping them. And we've all broken all of the Ten Commandments. If not literally, and physically than at least in our minds and hearts. And, and that, said Jesus, means we have broken them. But does it really matter? Does it really, really matter? I mean, we know God loves us, and we know God's a forgiving God, and I reckon if we're completely honest with one another, uh, many of us would say, well, disobedience to God's law, it's unfortunate, we try not to, but God's a God of love and of grace and forgiveness. And in the end, surely it doesn't matter that much, does it? Well, there's an American guy called Philip Yancey, and he, he wrote this book, good book, What's So Amazing About Grace. It was published in 1997. 1997. And uh, I guess it was among the first of a, a long list of books written about God's grace. It was all quite a big thing in the, the 90s and the noughties, getting back to grace and focusing on this thing which we seem to have forgotten. But I wonder whether grace has made us forget obedience. Now, when I'm preaching, I have uh, green sheets in here, which have got quotations, illustrations, and things like that on. So uh, here's a green sheet, and I file them, and at the top, this one says, Obedience. And then on the back of the sheet, I write down where I've used uh, those particular quotes, so I don't do them too many times. The uh, little story at the beginning I used here in May 2015, you may remember. Probably not. But uh, anyway, on this obedience sheet, it says that I I used it first um, at All Saints Crowborough in 1987. 
And then quite a number of times in 1988, because I was working with a youth organization around the country then, uh, and then uh, once at Word Alive in 1995, and never since. It's interesting, isn't it? Quotations about obedience, like this. Christianity is obedience. And this one, which I haven't used since 1995, Eric Alexander, the evidence of knowing God is obeying God. Spurgeon, believing and obeying always run side by side. But it's 30 years ago, 30 years ago, before, uh, since I was last really using those quotations any time. Maybe our emphasis on grace has made us a little bit less concerned about obeying God. When I was a curate in Crowborough, my boss used to say that uh, uh, the truth is usually in the extremes, both extremes at the same time. So if we're thinking about, on the one hand, you might have grace, on the other hand, at the other extreme, so you might have obedience, he would say, actually, it's 100% grace and 100% obedience. Except we seem to have forgotten the obedience a teeny little bit. So uh, we're thinking this evening about, does obedience really matter in the end? Let's pray. Father, please would you help us see in this passage uh, the truth, the the truthful answer to that question, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. You drink more than you should, and then you lie to cover it up. It doesn't really matter, does it? God forgives. That's what he's like. You arrange coffee with a friend. But then something more attractive comes up, so uh, uh, you cancel. And your friend won't mind, you're going to see her another time. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And don't you think that's rather selfish? And we're told not to be selfish. And yet we think obedience doesn't really matter that much, does it? And then you're standing in the queue in um, Sainsbury's, as I was whenever I was, early Friday morning. And there was a lovely old guy in front of me. Um, he apologized to the checkout operator that he had Parkinson's. Until that point, I was getting a little bit irritated he was moving so slowly. And then I realized, and I confessed my sin and my impatience. But before that, I was thinking, come on, why doesn't that guy hurry up? Come on, get a move on. I'm in a hurry. I want to get back home. And then perhaps you find it really difficult to stop using the word Jesus or God as a form of punctuation. I know he breaks the third commandment, you think, but he understands, surely. So does disobedience really matter in the end? Well, we're getting to our Bibles now, so hopefully you haven't closed it. It's page 805. And the situation here is that God's people have been disobedient before God for so long. And at long last, he has used the Babylonian armies to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, and to deport the vast majority of the population, and especially the leaders, especially the people who are kind of qualified, the, the most, I suppose in some ways you could say, the most able people. And they've taken them over to what is now Iraq. 
And there's a little bunch of Jews left behind in Judah. And some others have kind of come out of the woodwork from other places and have joined them back in Judah. Um, And then in chapter 42 and verses 1 to 6, we didn't have that read by Jeff earlier on. But they've come to Jeremiah and they've asked him to pray, to pray for them. They're afraid of Babylon. They're afraid that Babylon might come and wipe them out as well. And there are only a few of them left. If you just glance at uh, verse 2 of chapter 42. Um, Please hear our petition and pray to the Lord for for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. And they want to know what to do. Look at verse 3 there, the next verse. They want to know what to do. They want to know where to go. And Jeremiah says, I'll pray. And then I'll come and tell you everything God says. So it's a promising start. And then ten days later, with the threat of the Babylonians coming in to wipe them out, so ten days is quite a long time to wait, um, uh, he's back. Jeremiah goes back to them. And uh, in chapter 42 and verse 7, you can see that ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called them together and he told them what the Lord had said. And in our reading, we just have, as a result of that, and God's word to them, we see a chronic disobedience. It just seems to be part of their DNA. They're just disobedient. The people of Judah, the remnant left in Judah, after the rest have been deported here, and they just seem to be incapable of obeying God. And there are three things we see here about their disobedience, which makes our disobedience, I think, actually a bit disconcerting. Three things we're going to see here uh, that are in our own hearts as well. It's all pretty contemporary And the first thing here is this. It's a deliberate disobedience. Now, if we look back to Jeremiah 24, and then in Jeremiah 29, verses 16 to 20, for instance, we'd see that Jeremiah is saying that the future for Judah, the people of Judah, is actually with the exiles in Babylon, over in modern-day Iraq. There is a future for them. But God says to these guys, who are now in Judah, he says through Jeremiah, no, you guys stay here. Uh, So in chapter 42 and verse 10, more of that in just a moment, but he says, if you stay in this land, that's in Judah, I'll build you up, not tear you down, I'll plant you and I'll uproot you. And uh, we'll look at that, come back to that in a moment. Now, it looks dangerous, because the the Babylonian armies are there, they can come down and wipe them out any time they like, and they want to get as far away from them as possible. They have in their minds, well, you know, there's, there's Egypt, Egypt looks good, Egypt looks safe. And uh, But Jeremiah says, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 42, if you go down to Egypt, not one of you is going to return. I will destroy you. And they went down to Egypt. Because it was further away from the Babylonians. They thought it was going to be safe. So their choice was, you can stay in Judah and obey God and have to trust God for your safety. Or you go to Egypt and you disobey God. And they were deliberately, in the end, disobeying God. And we have to be honest, don't we? That staying in, uh, in Judah itself does look scary. But actually, look at the end of verse 11. Do not be afraid of him. That is the king of Babylon, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. Trust God to look after you. 
But let's look at the verse before that. Let's look in verse 10. Because uh, it says there, if you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I'll plant you and not uproot you. For I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted on you. Now, you may have a different version of the Bible. Some of the older versions of the Bible translate that word relent, repent. And if you've got the older New International Versions that we use here, the older one from 1984, it says, I am grieved. And both the idea of repenting and God saying, I'm grieved, suggests, don't they, that he's made some kind of mistake. Or even there's some kind of wrongdoing that God has been involved with that he needs to repent of. No, not at all. There are simply new circumstances. God's judgment on his people is done and dusted now. And so here's a change of attitude and a change of intention towards his people. Uh, Relented here really means to take a deep breath. And then possibly just to let it out and think and say, well, let's start over now. Let's start again. And you see, God Almighty is giving his people, this little bunch of his people here, a new opportunity. And how wonderfully, amazingly gracious is that. But that's what God is like, isn't he? Wonderfully, amazingly gracious because of his love. So if you've mucked up again, why not turn to your our wonderfully, amazingly gracious God? Tell him you're sorry. Ask for his help again. Trust him again. Put your hand in his again. That's what the people of Judah should have done here. But they didn't. They made a deliberate choice to be disobedient and to go down to Egypt. And they knew they were being disobedient. And they understood what God had said through Jeremiah. And they still went. In fact, this um, Jeremiah was written originally in Hebrew. And, and there's just a thing in the original where it suggests that they're, even as Jeremiah is warning them, they're kind of murmuring. Don't want to do that. Surely he's understand. Come on, let's, let's be getting down to Egypt. Come on. And, uh, uh, and you can understand why they wanted to disobey. I mean, they'd had two years of invasion and um, a siege and a horror of war. And they longed for peace and stability and, and food on the table. And Egypt's very alluring to them, even if it is an illusion. And going there is a deliberate disobedience. But aren't we just the same? I am. I guess you are too. You know, I'm about to lie to protect my back and I know it's wrong. And what do I do? I lie to protect my back. Or I'm about to place an order for yet another top and I don't need a shirt or whatever. And I don't need it. And my conscience is pricking me. And what do I do? Place the order. Deliberate disobedience. Now, does disobedience really matter? In the end, deliberate disobedience. Second, I love that picture. Uh, And it says at the bottom there, determined disobedience. Now, um, some people, I read this um, this week, some people succeed because they're destined to. Most people succeed because they're determined to. And so most people succeed 
in their disobedience because we're determined to. So we get so convinced in our own, in our own hearts of what we want to do that it's okay. It may not be quite right, but it's okay. God will understand and I can't help it kind of thing. Like going down to Egypt, chapter 43 now, in verse 2. And they said to Jeremiah, the arrogant men of Judah said to Jeremiah, you're lying, the Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. Egypt's going to be okay, it's going to be safe, it's a great place to go. Fatal mistake, as we shall see. It's simply a very determined disobedience. They asked for the truth, they got the truth, and they call it a lie. And they sought God's will, and they followed their own. And they hear God's voice, and they now reject it and refuse to listen. They hear the word of God and they say it's not true. Just like people today. The result? A deliberate disobedience. So people hear the word of God, for instance, and say, well, actually, I don't like the idea of judgment and hell. It's not true. Well, they hear the word of God about marriage. One man, one woman for life. I say, no, it's not true. So we'll redefine marriage to fit in what we want it to be. But what arrogance to assume that we have the right to do that. And then we live in disobedience. And talking of arrogance, do you notice the arrogance in verse 2 here in 43? All the arrogant men of Judah. I think they know better than God. But we never can know better than God. And when you think you do... You end up with a very determined disobedience, which is a very foolish thing. Does disobedience really matter in the end? And then third, a devastating disobedience. And that's chapter 43 and verses 8 to 13. Tarpanis, if you look on a map, Tarpanis is the top right-hand corner of Egypt, okay? As near to Judah as you can be. And also, it's the bit of Egypt which is as near to where the Babylonians as you could get as well, but they seem to ignore that. Um, but the crushing thing here is this. I think this is really important in this passage. They're doing their own deportation. So look at chapter 43 and verse 5. The army officers led away all the remnant of Judah. Verse 6, they also led away all those who Nebuzaradan commanded the imperial guard had left with Gedaliah, son of Ahiakam, and so on. They were taken into captivity by their own people. I think the really crucial thing that's going on here, which I hadn't tweaked, I think the really crucial thing is going on here is in the Exodus, God's people came out of Egypt into eventually the promised land. And here, in their disobedience, they're going out of the promised land and back into Egypt. Back where they came from. Back into a slavery. They're turning it back to front. You see, see what happened in Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover, in Exodus chapter 14 with the crossing of the Red Sea, the Exodus, it's a, it's a salvation. It's getting out of slavery to freedom. And what they're doing here in their disobedience to God is they're reversing it. And they're going back from freedom into the land where they were slaves. And they're going from life 
and the promised land to the land that God had taken them out from in order to get there. As one of the commentators said, as I read it this week, it's an outrageous act of defiance that nullifies the great exodus of Israel out of Egypt. I think it's more than that, actually. It reverses it. It's reversing salvation. It's a huge, deliberate and disastrous rebellion against God. And guess what happens? God uses Nebuchadnezzar. He calls him my servant in chapter 3 and verse 10 to judge the remnants in Egypt. The Babylonians reach out and they're destroyed. It happened. Well, it's prophesied here from verse 11 onwards. And it happened 20 years later. In 567 BC, just as Jeremiah predicted. It actually wasn't a full-scale conquest. It wasn't the Babylonians coming in, taking out the whole of Egypt. It was the Babylonians coming in, doing the first little bit, just where the, the, the Jews were, just where God's people, where they'd gone to. Just that little bit. And it was as if, and it probably was, the Babylonians are trying to say to the guys in Egypt, look, you stay here and don't mess with the Babylonians. Don't get involved in stuff over in Asia. You just stay here in Egypt. But in doing so, they destroyed every last member of God's family who had gone there and made Egypt the land of slavery where they had been slaves their home. John Calvin said, nothing is more fatal to us than to refuse to give ourselves in obedience to God. And their disobedience was devastating. They were crushed by God's servants, never to rise again. A devastating obedience. And Jeremiah had been taken down to Egypt with them. And he would continued preaching, uh, but it was there that he died. And they would have continued to call him a liar. But Jeremiah continued as God's man. Surrounded by people who were living in disobedience to their God. Does disobedience really matter in the end? Yes. Yes, it does matter a lot. I mean, look at chapter 43 and verse 4. Jehanan, the son of Kareah, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Ask them, does disobedience really matter in the end? Yeah, it does matter a lot. And disobedience shows where your heart is. It's one of the things in Jeremiah, I think a central verse in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And when we disobey God, it reveals the state of our hearts. Now we've got to be careful here because um, uh, we're not legalists. Okay, so I'm not saying you just got to obey God and that's what it's all about. Christianity is just about obeying God. It's not just about obeying God. It is simply we have a loving father. We love him and when you love someone, you want to do what they do. So we're not being legalists. 
As we get a big picture here, Jeremiah is prophesying to God's people who he has saved for himself through this exodus from Egypt. And then once they've been saved, he then says to them, look, this is how I want you to live your lives as my saved people. This is how saved people live. Which is why it's so devastating when they say, well, actually, I think we'll go back to Egypt. Thank you very much. Physically, literally. They're kind of picking apart the seams of their salvation. They're unsaving themselves, if that were possible. But saved people have a new heart. And we want to live for our God and be obedient. So that's not rules and regulations. That's not saying, well, do this, do this, do that, and don't do that, whatever you do. No, it's not saying that. It's saying we love God and we want to do what God wants us to do. And that means, of course, being obedient to him, doesn't it? I mean, imagine you fall in love with, uh, um, uh, with a girl who happens to be an archaeologist. And three months later, you end up on a dig. Now, a year ago, you thought, the last thing on earth I ever want to do is go on an archaeological dig. But you go now, because she's there, the love of your life. Or you fall in love with a bloke who loves the proms. And uh, so come September, you find yourself at the Albert Hall, singing Land of Hope and Glory with a lot of other Union Jack-clad individuals, and your mum thinks you've gone absolutely crazy. And why are you there? Because he is. And when you love someone, you want to do what they do, and be where they are, and you want to please them. So obedience to God is not legalism. We made that commitment. We love the Lord Jesus, and we love to do what he wants us to do. And we ask him to help us. That's never easy. We'll fail from time to time. And our hearts are not always great, but we try, and we ask God to help us by his spirit. Two things as we close. Sorry, time is done. First thing, therefore, decide for Jesus. We need to get our hearts right first, and then ask God to help us to more and more want to be obedient. And if our hearts are not right, then disobedience will be so much easier, won't it? Because we've got naturally disobedient hearts, and we need to be born again. We need a heart transplant. So first we need to decide for Jesus. And that will help you to live for him and to want to live for him. Do it tonight. And then the second thing is this, and dwell on the gospel. The big picture here, guys, is this is a saved people really fouling up. And we could do the same. So this is a warning. And how do we avoid that? Well, what they needed to do is remember they'd come out of Egypt in the first place. What they needed to do is remember they'd been saved by God from slavery and been given a promised land, which they're now voting to leave. What they needed to do was believe God's word that Jeremiah gave them and actually trust the Lord that actually if they stayed there in the promised land, they were going to be all right somehow. And they called God's prophet a liar. But if we dwell on the gospel, we dwell on our salvation, if we chew it over, when we read it again and again, and it gets part of more part of our lives, um, then the gospel will always be our great motivation to live for Jesus and to be obedient Christians. So does disobedience really matter in the end? Yes, it does. That's why Jesus died for us. 
And when we love him, when we really love him, we really want to help him to help us to do what he wants us to do, to be obedient. That's a good thing, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, it seems to us a, a bit scary, really, when you get the people of God going back where they came from, choosing to. Please, Lord, may that act as a warning to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would listen to you. And you'd, It's always a fight. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to be people who want to obey you. And that gradually we help one another. And we pray for your help, Lord, please, to be people who... Because we love you, because you've saved us, want to live for you, we pray, for Jesus' sake.